Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley in the philosophy department, and I'm joined by Anne-Marie Koistra in the history department. And today, we are very fortunate to have as our guest, Vernon Lee, who's in the Biblical and Theological Studies Department, and he's going to talk to us about Josephine Butler and race and gender in the Victorian era. Welcome, Vernon, to Bookish at Bethel. Thanks for joining us today. Yes. I'm wondering, since probably many of the people who regularly tune in to Bookish at Bethel don't maybe know you or know your story, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of what your area of specialization is, and maybe even how you got to Bethel. Yeah, sure. Um, So um, I teach uh, Hebrew Bible Old Testament in our departments of biblical and theological studies here. Uh, my area of interest is uh, within Hebrew Bible studies and Pentateuchal studies. Uh, so the first five books, uh, the Torah. Uh, within the Torah, I am primarily interested in law and ritual. So all the stuff that has to do with uh, slicing up animals and ripping up their insides <laughs> and stacking it on an altar and setting it alight is, is the stuff that just uh, gets me excited. It sets uh, you on fire, you know, in a way. Oh, oh, yeah, it does. It does. I keep my insides inside of myself, but, you know, the flames <laughs> are, are, are raging around me and, and that's, just, that's, that's just fine. <laughs> Vernon, I guess it kind of goes with my name, doesn't it? Vernon, yeah. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, you know, I started out uh, in Hebrew Bible studies uh, in a very traditional fashion. So I I did it at at, at the University of Toronto in a school of theology and in the departments of Near and Middle East and Civilizations. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, it was all about constructing the cultural and the historical background behind the creation this thing that we call the Hebrew scriptures of the Hebrew Bible, understanding something about Babylonian literature, uh, Assyrian cultural practices, uh, so on and so forth, right? All the stuff that informs the imagination of the scribes as they're creating the fabric, the literary fabric, which is what turns out to be the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and then something of a turn happened uh, in, in, in how I thought about all of this uh, uh, a while after I graduated, um, I, I began to be uh, uh, excited by what communities of faith were doing with the mm-hmm. text. So it wasn't just what the text was saying <laughs> and what its cultural location could tell us about you know, what a scribe was thinking. It, it was what the imagination of reading communities was doing. And I I sort of, the 19th century uh, uh, sort of became my thing. So the Victorian period. uh, And I'm interested in Victorian biblical interpretation uh, in the context of empire. So how is it that that the Brits uh, communicated the the rhetoric of empire? How did uh, the various cultures uh, in the empire respond to that uh, argument. Uh, how is the Bible uh, built into all of these conversations? Uh, what are the interesting 
uh, things that happened as we, we try to imagine how these uh, biblical episodes unfolded, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's my thing. Okay, so I have um, two follow-up questions for you, Vernon. Yeah. So first of all, are you Canadian by birth? Uh, no, I, I'm Singaporean by birth. Okay. So I was born and raised in Singapore. I, I lived there until I was 21 years of age. Uh, and then I went to university in Canada. Okay. Uh, and, and finished up my formal education there before taking a post in, in Indiana for four years and then coming to Bethel. And then my second follow-up question, uh, you sent around this paper that you wrote about jo- Josephine Butler. Uh-huh. And just uh, with that paper and what you've just said about your sort of academic career so far, I'm wondering, do you consider yourself outside of the biblical theological studies? Are you a historian or a uh, literature person, first and foremost? I think I'm first and foremost a literature person, okay. although I, I was flirting with the idea of doing uh, graduate work in history, particularly uh-huh. in medieval history when I was coming out of uh, my undergraduate work, but eventually decided that I read literature because uh, history because I, I just enjoyed reading ancient literature. Right. Okay. Yeah. So text is, you know, the stuff of books is what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. So you're here today to talk to us about this this paper that you sent around on Josephine Butler. I have a feeling that some of our listeners don't know much about Josephine Butler. So could you talk a little bit about just who she was first? Yeah. So Josephine Butler's writings really come to the fore towards the end of the Victorian period. So uh, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, And she is a conscientious Christian um, who is challenging some of the uh, sexual norms of the day, particularly the way sexuality is constructed around gender. Uh, This idea that uh, men have a runaway libido that is out of control and because of the subordinate status of women and, and the way that they serve the empire, mm-hmm. uh, they're expected to uh, be of service to, to this, these, these sexual wants. Um, and, and that places women uh, in, in a rather precarious position. Uh, one of, one of the, the things that she embarks on is her, challenges, is her, her challenge to the uh, Contagious Diseases Act. Uh, which was a a measure concocted by the the governments of the day, essentially to police prostitution, right? And and to ensure that uh, the the ravages of venereal disease uh, 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 would not get out of hand and infect a large sector of the population. But it was conducted in such a way as to assume, as to build upon this sense of masculine male privilege in terms of access to women's bodies. So it was all about, uh, you know, ensuring that the women that these men had access to were, were had a clean bill of health and that they weren't right. going to infect men. So she was challenging that. And, and, and what, what makes her writings uh, through various tracts, uh, through her works of biblical interpretation, she's just steeped in the evangelical Christian imagination, right? So everything that she says has to do with Jesus, has to do with the Bible. She's articulating a response in biblical Christian terms. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about it all is, is that she, she really, uh, on the one hand, challenges the cultural norms of the day, but co-ops it as well. Right. Because my understanding of her career is that 
while she certainly doesn't want the Contagious Disease Acts to remain legal, she also is not advocating, um, say, a go-nuts policy with regard to sexuality. She actually wants to have a single standard of sexuality Mm -hmm. that would apply not only to women, so keep that in place, but then also apply it to men. Yeah, yeah. So she's... um she's egalitarian in, in that sense, right? She's fair-minded and she's got a level head and, and she's really thinking about uh, uh, placing some, some strictures in, uh, putting some strictures in place that, that, that are going to regulate human sexuality and make for a more healthy society mm-hmm. in general. So yes, that's spot on. Mm-hmm. And so how does she use the Hebrew Bible to uh, to advocate for this for her positions, yeah. So the particular passage uh, that that I was working on in terms of what she did with it um, um, is is the passage in Judges chapter nineteen, right? Uh, if you're not uh, familiar with that passage, it's it's, it's a grisly story, right? So uh, a Levite, right, someone of the priestly class, uh, goes with his concubine, his woman. It's not clear exactly what her status is. Uh, they, they have a tiff and she runs away. She runs home to her father and he runs after her and he retrieves her. And on the journey back home, um, they, they, they tarry in, in Gevea, uh, a little town. And, and there the local rabble show up and they demand sexual access to the Levite, to the man. Uh, and, and, and through the exchange, what happens is that this woman gets tossed out the door and she's the one her body is the thing that sates their sexual desires in, in the place of the male occupants in the house. Right. So, uh, and, and that's where she's laser uh, Butler's laser focused on the effects of this gang rape of this mm-hmm. violence, but she's not primarily concerned with the biblical text itself. Mm-hmm. She's concerned about using the example of the violence that's committed against the woman as a way of protecting the men who are in the house to talk about the social issues of her day. And she's essentially drawing an analogy from it and then saying, this is, this is what we're doing together as a society. We're tossing the woman out the door. We're allowing the mob to ravage her bodies and that's keeping us safe. And that's our primary concern, us being the male members polite British society, I suppose, who want to have their fun, but, um, you know, want to keep disease at the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, yeah, carry on. Well, so I was going to ask, I mean, I feel like I, I am not a Pentateuch scholar, but I have some familiarity with the Pentateuch as just a, you know, Bible reader. And I, I think that there are a number of stories where women are sort of if you will, thrown under the bus, proverbially, proverbially, um, with regard to sexuality. I feel like even, um, isn't there a story involving Lot, where Lot's like, you know, don't take my sons, but here's maybe a daughter? Or am I making that up? Um, I think you're thinking of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Okay. And, and the Judges 19 story, in, in, many fa- in many ways, mimics that as well. Right. So so the sense that, again, the rabble's at the door and they're wanting in, they're wanting access to these angelic figures mm-hmm. who've, who've paid a visit uh, to Lot's household. And uh, and so they're banging on the door. They want in. Mm-hmm. 
and and lots uh, tries to negotiate a deal and it doesn't work. And so the angels, the messengers of God, um, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, I'm getting confused now. Yeah, lots offering the women of the household, yeah. sort of saying, "Don't do this evil thing." These are my guests, but have at it with with the women in the household. What what do you make of that? I mean, I know we can return to Josephine Butler, but literally I'm super curious, Vernon, what, what you make of that and what you do with that. I mean, you're at a Christian university. I I would assume you have some belief system that involves, you know, trying to make sense of the Pentateuch as, as a person of faith. I mean, what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's something that comes up over and over again, to teach a course in biblical law and the Christian imagination, biblical law as, as Christian scripture. And one of the texts that, that we deal with, um, um, laws pertaining to uh, to slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the cases talks about what happens um, when it's a woman, when it's a daughter who is offered to someone because the man is in debt, mm-hmm. and the woman is the daughter is essentially sold off as a sex slave, as mm-hmm. as someone who's going to be a concubine or something less than 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 a wife of a lower status. Mm-hmm. And, and the laws really kind of restrict what the uh, party that acquires this woman is allowed to do with her. But it simply assumes that that was the practice of the day. Right? Mm. And, and so law after law after law, of course, you've got polygamy as the norm right. in the laws of Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, it's just part of the furniture of the culture of the day. It was assumed that uh, men had access to women's bodies and all of the laws that pertain to uh, propriety and sexual expression have to do with protecting the woman's womb as the property of the man, mm. right? Uh, what do I do when, when I read these texts uh, with students in my class? I, I tell them that, you know, that's, that's just where, that's where God finds Israel. It's not necessarily the case that God uh, uh, sanctions such an order that, that, you know, it's not the case that God says this is just fine, and we're talking about the ideal society here, which is all about male possession of female wounds. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's about working with the circumstances of the day, the situation of the day. It's about curbing ravenous sexual appetites and exploitation uh, within the strictures of the norms. But it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Uh, Elsewhere in the canon, of course, you have the erotic poetry of Song of Solomon. And their sexuality uh, for itself is is celebrated. And there it's presented to us in a fashion uh, where it's fairly clear that the affection is mutual. There's no Mm -hmm. sense of control Mm -hmm. of one party over the other. Mm -hmm. Right? So you've got some movement there in terms of male-female engagement in the sex act, right? Uh, And then, of course, you move into the world of the New Testament and suddenly all these pastoral epistles, you have talk about how when you pick a church elder, this person has to be the husband of only one wife, right? Right. So so it's a creeping norm, right? It's changing. So the story of scripture is, is, is moving us along a certain trajectory. Now, that's sort of the future with respect to the world of the Old Testament, but we could also look to the beginnings, and we could look at Genesis chapter 3, which is the story of the so-called fall, right? 
And, and, and one of the things um, that happens there as a result of the human rebellion is, is that uh, right around chapter 3, verse 16, 17, you know, God says to the woman, right, um, uh, your desire shall be for your husband mm -hmm. and he will rule over you. And, and the point that I'm making all of this is that word desire, the shukah in the Hebrew, and mashal, to rule over, is, is the language of contention. Yeah. Right. And it's the exact opposite of the original divine vision, which is captured in, in Adam's response when this 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 woman is lopped off his side. Mm -hmm. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and he does this little dance, at least that's how I imagine it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a picture of harmony. Yeah. Right. Uh the sense of a mutual love and and a a, a mutual attraction that draws them together again. There's no talk about any form of a hierarchy. They're nothing. Right. Right. And then you go to chapter three and it's like, you know, uh, desire for your husband, desire to shuka in the sense of desire to control mm -hmm. and mashal is rule over also the language of violence. So it's essentially they're trying to manipulate the mm -hmm. other. And that's, that comes out of that act of rebellion. So this whole thing of a hierarchy of gaining control over the other is, is really contrary to the divine design. And then we have the glorious history that goes all the way through the stories of the Pentateuch, and we have the working out of uh, what is essentially a very human vision for how that relationship should be. Mm -hmm. And then God's actions are, you know, redemptive mm -hmm. in that respect. And it's putting us on a trajectory that's saying, let's, let's get back to how things should have been. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I spin it, right? And it works in most days, I guess. Yeah. I'm just yeah, thinking but, that story of creation, fall, redemption has a very nice kind of feminist twist or feminist language that's embedded into it of the sort of the move from creation where everything is about cooperation mm -hmm. to the fall where everything is about competition and this very masculine, right, social contract um, and enlightenment kind of ethics to then back into cooperation, care, mm -hmm. um, relationship. Mutual yeah. delight. Yeah. Yeah, and Torah too. I mean, that's all about regulation, right? It's, it's right. regulating a, a, a social structure, a, a, a construct that's gone awry. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to fix it from the outside because mm -hmm. something's gone uh, inherently wrong with the human condition. And until that can be reversed, uh, fixed, uh, healed, or whatever it is that we want to call it, uh, you've, you've got to contain it. That's essentially what we're doing here. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it really mimics the, you know, what it is. I mean, it's what, what God says to the woman is really a counterpart to what he says to the man. And, and to the man, he's saying, you know, you were taken out of Adama. Mm -hmm. You are Adam human and you came out of the adama which is the word for ground and dirt right mm -hmm. and then the consequence of this rebellion is that the ground is not going to yield mm -hmm. to the human so it's once again it's and, and what was the original vision the chap was supposed to till the garden mm -hmm. and that's come apart mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I feel like what, what one of the things that I, I'm hearing sort of between the lines is read the whole book, 
you know, like this is the, this is the uh, demonstration of the importance of, you know, don't just read a little section. You're going to come away with a really, um, imp, you know, a partial vision of the sort of what's going on. It's, it's important to read the whole book so you can get that creation fall redemption paradigm and not just the, uh, the law and the, the fall part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and that applies, of course, to the, uh, the canon as a whole, right? So, the, or the Christian Bible as a whole. Yeah, I had a teacher in Toronto who, who used to, you know, tease us by coming in at the beginning of class and uh, doctoral seminar. And he, he would say, you know, the, the Gospel of John's not scripture, right? Go, what? What are you talking <laughs> about? And, and his point was that, you know, John's only scripture if it's read as one of the four Gospels. The Gospels is only scripture if it's read as part of the New Testament. The New Testament's only scripture if it's read as part of the Christian Bible as a whole. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, so that's that's a point of view that I advocate in class. Anytime you hit some sort of an opinion, some sort of perspective mm-hmm. um, on something, ask yourself, what are the other parts of the canon that would speak to this matter? Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to teach a class later this afternoon uh, that's going to deal with that very subject, but looking at it through uh, the lens of sexuality again. So mm-hmm. what does the Bible say about sex? Mm-hmm. We'll sample different texts across the canon. Are people lined out outside the door for that particular class today? <laughs> no, it's a gen ed class. Everybody's resentful that they're in there, if anything. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you've got to work with what you have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Butler's vision is very much about uh, returning us, uh, you know, very much in line with the canonical perspective and bringing us to a place where one can see that there, there can be a sweet life together um, um, be- be- between the sexes, that, that it's, it's taking us back to a place where uh, equality, a more equitable approach to, to how we conceive of gender, mm-hmm. um, that's that's her agenda. And how was she? Can I ask how she was received at that time? In, at, you know, at that particular moment in Victorian culture. Um, I can speak to uh, the view within the church. Um, there was, of course, a group of her followers uh, who were very much in favor of what she was doing. Some of them were were feminist writers of the day. Uh, she's never counted herself as a feminist. Um, so she was never, never quite an egalitarian in, in our modern sense of the word, right? But she was advocating for a greater harmony in the relationship between the genders. Uh, but a lot of what she said uh, was, was deeply disturbing because it disturbed the patriarchal order of the day. And, and it was a sense that this hierarchy which includes this, this idea that uh, male sexuality just simply has to, to be allowed to do what it was made to do and that women have to comply. It was part of the architecture of the thinking in the church at the time. And, and so it was a piece of this idea of the subordination of women, which was thought to be the norm that was coming out of scripture of the day. So she was challenging that aspect of it, but, but she was not entirely on board with uh, an egalitarian view in mm-hmm. terms of marriage. But she spoke her mind and she smacked quite a few men around. Um, so, you know, if, if, if her words didn't quite do it, uh, her actions and the way that she engaged uh, society at large, uh, you know, carried her point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So she's an interesting figure because in, in, in many ways, you know, she, she seems to be bucking the trend, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and pulling the rug from underneath a polite English society. But in many ways, she's also uh, a co-sponsor. She's working with the norms of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, you know, she's, she's, she's very much uh, in line with uh, a Euro-supremacist view mm-hmm. of the world, that, that England is at the top of the pile, which is Europe, and Europe is at the top of the pile, which is human civilization. Mm-hmm. And the moral duty uh, of England is to lead the world into glory, back into the arms of Jesus, uh, and, and, and it's paving the way for that. Yeah. Well, and she reminds me of a number of other sort of um, key Christian women who are working at the end of the 19th century. So I'm thinking um, we had a student in the history department write about Hannah Moore, and she reminds me a little bit of Hannah Moore. Um, Kristen Dumas from Calvin, her first book was on Catherine Bushnell, who, again, in some ways, these sound like very conservative women by today's standards, but in their days, they were outlandish um, because they were taking on issues that a lot of other people wish they hadn't. So uh, Josephine Butler is maybe in good company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and so she's a good fit for uh, my broader project, which is, which is uh, uh, a monograph that I'm working on, and the title of it is Victorian Perversions. Right? Mm. And perversion in the Victorian sense of the word, the opposite of conversion. Mm. So conversions of the Christian faith, moving into norms of uh, orthodox understandings of what Christianity is. And, and the, these writers were perverts in the sense that they were advocating for a point of view that was thought to be, that was perceived to be outside of the norm, that was mm. essentially going to cause the edifice of Western thinking and, and good Christian practice to crumble mm-hmm. right. ever so gradually. Right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Brennan, one of the things, um, I'm, I'm, ch- I'm changing gears here just a little bit, but let's say you were forced or you were asked to teach in the humanities program. Is there a particular text you think would enrich the program that maybe we don't already read? Huh. I know that's a wild card question. Yeah. You know, the one that comes out, uh, comes to mind is, is one that, um, I think, according to, to my previous conversations with Carrie, it's 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 a book that you're already reading. Uh, oh, what is Adam it? Stoker's Dracula. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that comes up in the paper. Do you want to say a little bit about how um, Dracula comes up in your work on Josephine Butler? Sure. Yeah. So, so Dracula, uh, uh, along with the work of many writers, uh, stuff by Oscar Wilde and so on and so forth, uh, really sort of rides the. Um, the uh, the zeitgeist, right? the, the spirit of the times, and uh, and one of the things um, um, that was common in the literature and the artwork of the day was to portray a wanton woman, which is really mannish woman, which is really a woman who steps outside of the bounds of traditional conceptions of gender roles, uh, as really a, a direct attack. Uh-huh. On, on the glue that holds civilization together. Uh-huh. And the glue that holds civilization together um, is, is, is masculine, European masculine ingenuity. 
Uh-huh. And a common trope, the common symbol, the common way of talking about this and is, is to talk about blood, right? Blood, and that's mm-hmm. a biblical image. Blood is the stuff of life. Uh, your, uh, when we talk about things that, that we've inherited from our, our ancestors, we talk about what's in our blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the blood of European males is this is the fuel that keeps this drive upwards uh, towards uh, towards heaven, mm-hmm. which is what Europe is leading the world in doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Dracula has various scenes. Of course, you've got uh, the uh, Dracula's acolytes who are attacking male figures who stand for logic and good thinking, mm-hmm. and they're sucking the blood out of them. Uh, the other image that comes to mind is a lot more radical, of course, in the conceptions of the day. Uh, semen was, was understood to be a concentrated form of blood. You know? mm-hmm. And semen was the stuff, you know, the same stuff that goes into your testicles is the stuff that runs in your head, uh, mm-hmm. that animates your imagination. And this is what's carrying um, the world towards the glory of God. Right. So, so you've got all of this imagery that comes out in the literature of the day where you have these uh, uh, women who have slipped their bounds and, and they're drinking blood and they're eating men's heads. They're consuming uh, their, 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 their ejaculate, right? Mm-hmm. All of these ways of talking about how this unruly segments of Victorian society is really in many ways um, undermining the pillars that hold everything together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde does a fantastic job as he reimagines uh, the story of uh, you know, John the Baptizer, mm-hmm. right? right? Gets his head lopped off at the request of uh, the daughter of Herodias, mm-hmm. right? And, and the, the head gets carried to her in, in uh, Wilde's depiction of the event. Right. And 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 what does she do? You know, uh, she talks about consuming the head mm. of eating the head. Uh, uh, I mean, that's a that's a prime example of, of a trope that fits so well into the Victorian mm. imagination in the late Victorian period. Yeah. Here's a crazy oversexed woman mm-hmm. who's asked for the head of a great man. And what does she want to do with that head after she sucked the life out of it? Mm-hmm. There's this is wonderful scene where she disrobes in front of the head and she tries to infuse the life that she has taken out of the head to infuse the head with it, to blow it back into the head. <laughs> well, I mean, Wilde's having a wild time. He's having yeah, great fun. Indeed. He's probably taking a poke at, um, you know, at, at, at the thinking of the day. Right. Um, yeah. I have to admit, I'm not familiar with that Oscar no. Wilde um, story. I feel, like, I feel like quite a pairing, maybe too scandalous for our humanities program, <laughs> would be thinking about um, Josephine Butler's telling of the judge's story right. with Oscar Wilde's telling of John the Baptist and Salome with, with Dracula. Uh, with Dracula. Well, that would be quite the threefer. Okay. I, I think it would be unforgettable shall we say, for our students, especially if Vernon would um, agree to guest lecture that day. Let's just put that on the table. <laughs> oh, my word. Um, I will just mention, too, for our listeners, um, in the American context, 
one of the great sort of visual depictions of some of these ideas is a film, early film, A Fool There Was. I think it came out in 1915, starring um, Theta Berra, who plays a the part of the female vamp in which she is basically sucking the life from various male victims. So, yeah, there you go. 1915, silent film, obviously, um, right. starring Theta Berra. And the name, of course, was fictitious, but it was an anagram for Arab death. So there's your colonialism also rearing its head in that yeah. context. Huh. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. What's yes. the name of the film again? A Fool There Was. Huh. And I think you can probably even find it on the YouTubes. Okay. But I also have a copy of it in my office. Okay. So there's that. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. So um I'm a little aware of the time, Vernon. And so I want to make sure that I don't leave us without knowing what's on your nightstand. What are you reading for fun these days? Well, Dracula's right there on the nightstand. Hooray. Some good yeah. stuff's there. Um, I'm also doing uh, some reading now. Uh, that's that's um, I'm, I'm interested in Florence Nightingale. Oh, yes. And in her, uh, in her various books, annotations on the biblical text. Mm. Um, and, and here I'm interested in uh, her, her religious fervor. She has several near mystical experiences where she feels the summons of God mm. to, to, to fix the ills of society, mm-hmm. problems of hygiene uh, um, um, in England, uh, in India, uh, in various locations in the world where she finds herself ministering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested in, in how her notions of Christian propriety connect with her sense of space, her sense of what the human body should look like. Mm-hmm. And so there's these this interesting collections, that, you know, stuff that comes out of her journals, uh, uh, taking notes on her trip to Egypt and how mm-hmm. she observes the locals. There. And, and there's a sense of revulsion and disgust as she mm-hmm. looks at the brown bodies on the shores mm-hmm. of the Nile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she talks about what's wrong with them. It comes out across again. It comes across again when she talks about hospital reform in India. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in that. And what she does with those notions and how she projects those values, her brand of Christian fervor, into her reading of the laws in uh, 11, uh, Leviticus 11 to 16, which, of course, have to do with blemish and yeah. ugly bodies and unseemly things. Nice. Um, yeah. Hmm. All kinds, all things disgusting. Wow. Great. Uh, so that's period. a new project. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. Nightingale. Carrie, <laughs> what, what highfalutin um, works are you reading? What's on your nightstand? Well, as always, my lowbrow Terry Pratchett guards guards, which is very entertaining. And then I've got my travesties in Tudor England. So witchcraft and monstrous births nice. um, book, which is continuing to be fascinating and then now back on my bookstand is ulysses since we're going to be doing a podcast on that baby this spring yes no i need to i need to put that on my nightstand i gotta get it on my nightstand i it is not yet on my nightstand i'm continuing on my nightstand are the mysteries of dorothy sayers 
And so right now I'm reading The Busman's Honeymoon, quite a lovely tale. Um, and then I still am making my way through Vagrants and Vagabonds. Um, and this is a history of controlling vagrancy in the early Republic in the United States. So there you go. Good stuff. Well, yeah. Well, we are out of time. Vernon, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. And, and to our audience, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. <laughs>